Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope. This is where you get to hear how to feel happy, balanced, and worthwhile, how to make that lonely ache vanish and feel empowered, confident, and secure. I'm Lauren Abrams, and today we're talking about community tolerance and receiving inner peace, as well as a little bit of understanding religion with Imam Jihad Turk. Jihad Turk, an Imam born in Arizona to a Christian mom and a Muslim dad, discusses how he overcame obstacles as they arise in his life as an American kid with the name Jihad, growing up where only 1% of our population is Muslim, when 25% of the world is actually Muslim. Hear how Jihad ultimately embraced his religion to cure that indescribable feeling that something's missing. He shows us how to bridge the gap between being misunderstood or feeling excluded to feeling loved, appreciated, and having inner peace. Today, Jihad works tirelessly, bringing cultures together as one. Imam Jihad Turk is a recognizable figure on the forefront of peaceful coexistence between communities. I'm excited in what I'm sure will be an enlightening episode, sure to bring a smile to anyone listening. Jihad's a wonderful, inclusive person, a kind, patient energy to be around. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope, Iman Jihad Turk. Thank you so much, Lauren. My pleasure to be here. You know, I'm, I'm an American kid from Arizona with the name Jihad. Let me just start with that because some people might be wondering, Jihad, what, what is what that, you know, that's not what we were expecting for the name of your host and all kinds of images get conjured up. But, you know, I grew I was born in 71 in Phoenix, Arizona. My father is an immigrant from Jerusalem and my mother's from Oklahoma. She's, you know, Christian, American, Caucasian. And so I say my mom's from the Midwest and my dad's from the Mideast. But, you know, they, they named me Jihad as uh, my dad named the boys in our, in our family. We were five kids growing up. And he named me Jihad, which, you know, was not a known name back in the 70s, uh, especially in Arizona. And so when I went to uh, play soccer, for example, on the AYSO team, my teammates called me Jay. Because in you know Phoenix back in the 70s, there wasn't a lot of diversity. You were either black, white, or Mexican. So they just thought, you know, Yihad, some kind of exotic uh, Mexican name, maybe Oaxacan or something. You know, but my teammates called me Jay. And when the roster came out, I was, I was by maybe seven or eight. They wrote J-A-Y Turk. And my dad, I remember seeing expression on his face when he saw that roster. He looked really disappointed and he crossed it out and made dittos or copies and went to the next game and passed it out to the parents on the sideline with my name spelled J-I-H-A-D. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, dad, what are you doing? He's like, no, no, your name has a good meaning. It means the struggle to do the right thing. You know, it may, maybe take, might take extra effort for people to remember it or to say it, but it's worth it. So I've always gone by Jihad ever since then. And, you know, since Jihad has been, I would say, hijacked by those who have ill intentions, I've been a little bit of a walking teaching moment saying, no, those people don't represent any faith, let alone Islam. And Jihad is a, is a virtuous concept and inspires the one fourth of the world's population that are Muslim to try and struggle to do the right thing. So let me just start by getting that out of the way and then say a word about where I'm at now. But I don't know if you uh, had any questions with that first. Yeah. And I actually I looked up Muslim and I was surprised to see it is 25 percent of the world's population is Muslim. It's surprising because in Southern California, you don't realize it, I think. Everybody is so segregated. It's the second largest religion is also what I, I learned. Uh, yeah, and I, I would say, you know, the biggest misconception, just because of the way media works. I mean, we're here in Southern California, Hollywood's around the corner. And, you know, media sometimes uh, perpetuates stereotypes. And so most people would have the imagination that most Muslims are Arabs. But Arabs make up only 15, 1-5% of the Muslim population in the world. The largest or most populous Muslim country is Indonesia, which is the world's third largest democracy after India and the United States. So there are more Indonesian Muslims than there are Arab Muslims, all combined, all of the different Arab countries. So, uh, but Muslims in the United States, we're only 1%, you know, and a third of our population are African-American Muslims. Think of Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, et cetera. And the other two thirds are immigrants who came primarily in the 60s during the uh, the brain drain or the brain suck from the from the rest of the world when we changed our immigration policy uh, here in the United States to allow for students to come from different parts of the world. And, and a lot of Muslims came as 
medical students and engineering students. And we have a, a disproportionate number of Muslim doctors and engineers as a result of that. I think even, even though we're only 1% of the U.S. population, I think something like 9 or 10% of the doctors in the United States are from a Muslim background. So it's, you know, that, that's kind of who we are now. And it's just, it breaks the stereotype in most people's minds. So your mother is Christian and your father is Muslim? Yeah, my mother is from Ponca City, Oklahoma. She's a Caucasian American of, you know, all mixed background, Italian, Irish, you know, British, some Pennsylvania Dutch, which is German. You know, she's Methodist. And my father is uh, Muslim, although, he, you know, he immigrated to the United States in 1956. I, I was visiting him recently. He's 82 now. You know, I, I was going through a scrapbook that he had. He had an article that he had cut out and, and put in the scrapbook that was written about him when he first immigrated to the States in 1956. The article read, it was, it was in, came to Merced, California, was sponsored by a little, local city councilman who was a, a businessman and had a printing shop. And he brought my father on to uh, not only sponsor him and come to the United States, but also to uh, serve as an apprentice in his printing business. So the article title was Arab Boy Moves to Merced to Begin Life He Dreamed Of. And, it, you know, it had a picture, his picture in there next to his sponsor and a, and a Heidelberg press. And it said, uh, you know, in the caption of the picture, you know, uh, Hafez Turk is standing next to another immigrant, the Heidelberg press. And this but it was just a very romantic notion of the American dream and welcoming immigrants to begin a life that they dreamed of. And, and it really has been, I would say, a wonderful immigrant story from, from my father and, and for us now as his children. Hopefully we can have that again one day. <laughs> look forward to it. I look forward to it. Definitely. So were you raised in the Islam, in the Muslim faith? Yeah, I, w my, I was told I was Muslim, but, you know, my dad was 17 when he came here. He wasn't uh, knowledgeable about Islam. He, I, he practiced, you know, the da five daily prayers and, and was observant as a Muslim, but he didn't really have anything to pass on to me in terms of substance or content. And so it was mostly just ritual that he was passing on to me. And so, you know, as any part of ritual is discipline. And as any good American kid, I, I tried to avoid discipline. And so, uh, you know, I wasn't very observant growing up. But when I was 16, 17, 18, I, I was I really began to ask some of the bigger questions in life. What is the source of true peace and happiness? And, and that's when uh, I began my, my, uh, my faith journey and looked at both Christianity and Islam, you, you know, and it was a time of of juxtaposition in my life. I was, it was a confluence of, of three things. Number one, my sister had a, a very serious illness. She was older than me by four years. She was hospitalized in intensive care and, and had an infection in her brain and she suffered some brain damage. And, you know, that was really challenging for a 12 year old kid to experience. And then a few years later, and in, in, in some ways as a result of the challenge or the strain that that put on my family, my parents ended up divorcing. While, while that sort of home turmoil was going on, uh, at school, I was, uh, I was experiencing great success. I was doing great in football and, and, uh, and track, and I was uh, popular. I was homecoming king. I was doing great in school and, you know, in honors classes and towards the top of my class. So, you know, it was, I was achieving outward successes, but it was like, what? This isn't bringing me inner peace. Like, this is not fulfilling. It's not filling the void in my heart. So I started asking the question, what is, what is that source of, of true inner peace and, and tranquility? And that's when I, you know, I had met a few people who were religious, who were also nice people, and they seemed to have it together. So I kind of piqued my curiosity, and I began asking those kinds of questions that led me on a, on a trip around the world and, you know, studying Arabic in Arabia and Persian in Iran and, you know, switching from engineering uh, as the, the main subject of my freshman year to, uh, to history and, and religion uh, as my major. Yeah, I'm still on that journey, but I, I'm, I'm definitely uh, looking past the superficialities of what success is and looking to the human condition and, and just inside of my own heart and what brings me joy and peace. Well, you you certainly got quite an education, plenty of degrees from different, you went to Berkeley, you went 
I know your doctorate, I believe, is from UCLA. Go Bruins. Um, yes. Well, I have some bad news for you. Number one is I did nine years towards my PhD. Didn't quite finish it. Uh, long story, but I ended up being recruited as the imam of LA's oldest and largest mosque. And the word is imam, by the way. Iman, as you said in the introduction, means faith. So it's also an Islamic word. And, you know, there's also the supermodel iman. But uh, but imam with an M is kind of a, the Muslim equivalent of a rabbi, I guess you could say, or a priest. That was what so I saw here. Yes, there you go. So I so I was recruited as the imam of that community. And so I put the, my PhD on the back burner. And here's the bad news. I just uh, I just began my my uh, my doctoral degree now at that other school across the street, USC. It's okay. So, I have my I have my. JD and, and masters from there. So it's okay. Okay. All right. Very good. Sometimes people aren't so for so forgiving. It's fine. <laughs> it's interesting that you talk about the discipline growing up of your religion, but not the richness. I'm paraphrasing, but that's because I mean it's not that different. We were we grew up twice a year Jews and I hated it. And I swore <laughs> I would never make my kids go to temple when I became a mom. And I just I couldn't stand it. But we were just twice a year Jews. I knew nothing. And when people I would always say, Oh, Jews don't do this and Jews don't do that. But I really knew nothing about being Jewish. It, it as far as the richness of it or anything else. And really when I got older and I actually found a synagogue that taught me and every you didn't have to believe in anything but I got mitzvah as an adult and it, it's actually through my rabbi that I met you that who said oh you have to you have to meet jihad turk <laughs> and and that I that I interviewed you a few years ago for my book and so on but I I see so many similarities in in that sense that you can discover the richness if you're open and looking for it and willing to receive, really, it, it's it's like anything else. Yeah, and, and willing- I think, yeah, I didn't mean to to to, to step on your your sentence there. It's, uh, so go ahead and finish. And also, I find it very interesting uh, that I love how you said that in order to for uh, your religion to be meaningful here in the states to young people, it has to be relevant. It has to be relevant to them. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I would say that you know. I love American culture in in many aspects of the culture is really, you know, having traveled and lived around the world, it's enviable, you know, and, and it, I would say it's even the best place in the, in the planet to be a Muslim because of the freedoms that we have here and the way that religion can be approached sincerely. You're, you're not pressured by society to be religious and you kind of have to buck the trends of society to be religious, in fact, because you know, society and culture, popular culture at least, is is oftentimes hostile to religion, which makes the 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 connection to religion more more sincere and more. Uh, it, maybe it takes more effort, but it's more rewarding. On the flip side of that is our culture is sometimes hostile to religion uh, in general, not just Islam, uh, which you know maybe it's more hostile to Islam these days because of geopolitics and and what's going on in the world, but. But generally speaking, you know, it's re- religion is not done well in the public in the public square in the United States as a general observation, and and I think that's a shame. I think that religion is sometimes um, portrayed in media in, in a way that gives voice to the most extreme forms of religion, and doesn't do a good job of of giving religion a a fair shake in how it really positively impacts the lives of those who take it seriously and uh, and not in an extreme fashion. And I think that that's where the gap is. And so we we have to, if we take religion seriously and we, we value it, figure out how to tell our story in, in the public imagination and transform that uh, perception thereby. And I think one way we can do that is to reclaim the role of religion uh, from the extremes and, uh, and, and help people realize that religion can be the source of peacemaking and of uh, strengthening bonds between people of difference, whether it be theological or racial, you know, and we come together on our values of social justice and of equity. And I think that religion when done right can be a, a beautiful and powerful force in, in the world. 
you do a lot of work of bringing together different religions. I know that's very important to you. Um, are you still able to do that work and you want to talk about how you have done that work? Yeah, I mean, there, there's kind of a neat story here. Uh, you know, here I am, a, a, an academic by training and imam by practice. And I was approached by uh, the president of a Christian seminary, Claremont School of Theology, Dr. De Dr. Uh, Campbell, and uh, Jerry Campbell. He, he came to me and said, you know, I've been following what you're doing in terms of interfaith work from your mosque. And, you know, your name came on my radar. I wanted to meet with you. And and we met and he invited me to give a Muslim prayer at, a, at the commencement ceremony for a Christian seminary, which I thought was um, was a beautiful, symbolic uh, gesture. And this was back in 2009. So, you know, now we have uh, some hindsight and distance from 9-11, but even, you know, eight, nine years out from 9-11, the tensions were, were pretty high in the country and there was a lot of uh, bigotry. Uh, there still is, and, and it's for different reasons now, I would say, political. But at that time, it was a, it was a very kind gesture. And so uh, we began to talk about the role of religion. And he said, you know, what would be wonderful is to partner together as a Christian seminary with a Muslim seminary and a Jewish seminary so that we can, um, so that we can reclaim the, uh, the, the role of religion to be that, that positive force that I was speaking about. So I said, well, that's, you know, that's a, that's a great uh, vision. One problem, there doesn't exist any accredited Islamic graduate school slash seminary in all of the United States for you to partner with, but we need one. We have over 3000 mosques in the, in the United States, less than half have a full-time imam and 90% plus of those imams that we do have were uh, born, raised and educated abroad. So you know, they might not, they might have some authentic knowledge, but translating that knowledge in a way, as you said, is relevant to young people, is inclusive of women and is civically engaged is a whole nother thing. And, and if we had our own seminary here in the United States, we could provide exactly that kind of foundation in addition to traditional Islamic studies. And so I said, you know, I'm an academic by training. I, I head up a very large community. I think we can uh, rally the community behind uh, launching such a such a seminary for you to partner with, he said, "Great, if you do that, we will help you." I said, "Okay, how how could you help us?" He said, "Well, we'll um, we have one of our trustees who's a, a donor. He he he. We can cover the first couple of years of your expenses." I said, "Wow, that's that's incredible." He said, "Also, we have a you know we're a 130 year old institution. We have all the infrastructure and facilities and classroom space and all of that and office space. We can host you." and have you plug into our system. I said, that's phenomenal. He said, there's more. I said, what more could there be? He said, well, we're accredited and we can incubate you so that your programs are accredited from the beginning. And so I said, wow, that's very Christian of you. And, uh, <laughs> and so we, we announced it in 2010. We launched it in 2011 with three students and we've grown with you know, a very modest number there. We, we've grown 25% a year for the last 10 years. Now we have we have over 120 students now enroll in our programs and some have graduated and are serving as imams and chaplains and in the military and prisons and universities and hospitals, uh, youth directors, Islamic school teachers and principals. And uh, we have two master's degrees that we offer now. And the great part is they're studying together with Jews and Christians in the classroom. And really as the next generation of religious leaders, they come to know each other at a profound level from the beginning so that interfaith work is in their DNA right from the get-go. So great. Our business model is uh, kind of cutting edge because we, we didn't, we're not a dinosaur institution that inherited you know, a large infrastructure. We said, what's the, what's the direction of higher education in the future? So we started using this, uh, pro, this program uh, six years ago. You might've heard of it, it's called Zoom. Uh, <laughs> now everyone knows about it, but we started six years ago and we, we started using Zoom as part of what we call a hybrid intensive or executive master's format, which means that the students come from around the country. It's accessible for people. They don't have to relocate, but it's not an online program. It's two thirds in person, but those two third, that two thirds of the instruction is condensed into one to two weeks every semester. The rest is online. 
And so it's phenomenal. In fact, the PhD or the, the doctoral program I'm starting at USC uh, in, in January, it, uh, it's also using almost exactly the same format. It's a hybrid intensive executive uh, format. You come intensively, you do most of the classwork face-to-face or the instruction, receive most of the instruction face-to-face in person along with your colleagues. And then you, you, know, you go back to where you're living and working and continue to study um, some online and some synchronous and asynchronous classes, uh, but you also can earn a living and continue serving your, your, your community and, and supporting your family. So it's the best of both worlds. And the neat thing is we've been able to, because of that model, attract the best and brightest faculty because we don't have to hire them as tenured faculty with all of the bloated overhead. We can just pay them a nice bonus on their salary from their host institution and borrow them from Yale, Stanford, Berkeley, Duke, Georgetown. So we have kind of the cream of the crop of Muslim faculty primarily from around the country who come and teach the course in which they're the leading experts. So we've kind of curated, if you will, uh, the strongest lineup of faculty in Islamic studies, you know, the, the, it's stronger than any uh, institution in the United States. And since we did that, we said, let's videotape it all and make it available to the public at large, not just the Muslim community, but it's kind of like, we call it a, our Netflix for Islamic studies. It's $10 a month, you have access to our entire library, you get no degree, you get no credential, but you watch it at your own pace and you can acquire the knowledge that might be interesting for you in Islamic spirituality or Islamic uh, history, Islamic law, et cetera. So, and even Islam in America, one of the classes that we offer is taught by USC professor, Dr. Sherman Jackson. And you know he's an African-American convert, he's from Philly uh, and very uh, well-regarded uh, academic. Uh, he teaches uh, a course for us on occasion called Islam and the Black American from slavery to hip hop. And it's a phenomenal course. And usually it's behind the $10 a month paywall, but after the killing of George Floyd, we said, you know, this would be great for the immigrant Muslim community to learn about the plight of the African-American Muslim community and African-Americans in general, because sometimes there's a de facto segregation even within the Muslim community just by virtue of where mosques are located and inner city and suburbs and all of that. So we made that available for free and within just a few, uh, a few days, 6,000 people signed up for that course. And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's something we're very proud of to be able to offer that caliber of course uh, to the public and help um, uh, you know pre- pre- present that public intellectual um, who might be behind in the ivory tower to the public at large and, and give access to some of the important thought leadership that they provide. That that is great. Now, you also had told me that the easiest way to overcome anti-Muslim bias is to meet a Muslim. Yes, that is, uh, that is, you know, it's, and it's, you know, it's, it puts the onus on both Muslim, both the Muslim community here in the United States, where again, we're 1% of the population according to Pew. But uh, it also, you know, people always ask, I, I you know, cause I'm kind of a, have a little bit of a public profile. People always come to me and say, how can we, what can we do? You know, we, we have good, great goodwill and we want to overcome this negative rhetoric. I said, well, get to know your Muslim neighbor. And most mosques have volunteering opportunities. Like one of the first programs that we started at the Islamic Center when I got there in 2005 was a food pantry. And we're part of an interfaith food pantry where we take turns different days of the week, the local synagogue, uh, you know, the, the Wilshire Boulevard synagogue, uh, the, the Islamic Center and, a, you know, a dozen churches. A couple of us each day will open up for the local uh, homeless population or, or needy population and we'll purchase food from the food bank and then distribute it uh, so that people uh, won't go hungry. And we need volunteers to come and to, to, to bag the groceries and to welcome and receive the hundreds and hundreds of people that come each week for that program and, and to uh, distribute the food to them. So, Okay, so here you are, say you're at the actual food center or something, how does anybody know who you are? You're not, you're not wearing any regalia, there's nothing to say, I'm from your center or your, there's no way to tell, oh, this is a podcast. So Jihad Turk doesn't look like you would expect him to look. He looks like 
anyone else. I don't know. I mean, if you found this on the podcast, I'll make sure to put your picture up. I mean, when I, he just looks like a dad. <laughs> I don't yes. know. He, he is a dad. He has four kids. He, yes. He's from, I mean, he played AYSO. He, he, there's no regalia you're wearing. You're not like, there's no robes. There's no, he's wearing a button up shirt right now. He just, he's sitting in a car because his kids are in the house Zoom doing his online, their online Zoom. Yeah, he's just like. <laughs> That's a good question. You know, what we do is because there, there are so many people of great goodwill out there. We have uh, uh, one of the women in our community. She's a physician. Her name is Dr. Karima, not Mumdani, but Karima Harani, and her husband is Mumdani. So they, the two of them, Al Mumdani, Al Noor Mumdani, and Karima Harani, they have been leading this effort every Saturday from 9:45 to 11 to receive volunteers. And before they open the doors to the recipients of the of the of the food, they gather all the volunteers together. People introduce themselves. It creates a it creates a nice family environment and sometimes large church groups or synagogue groups come and it's a wonderful wonderful uh, bonding opportunity you, you know i was working with believe it or not uh, an evangelical uh, community in uh, orange county very large one of the largest in the country and you know he said you know, we were gathering together and talking about how muslims view jesus how christians view jesus etc but he said you know really the best way for our communities to get to know one another. Uh, and there's a lot of work to do in the evangelical community. I'll just put that out there. And there's a lot of uh, negativity. I mean, statistically speaking, you know, they, they, there was an evangelical uh, organization that, that surveyed evangelicals and found them to be the most anti-Muslim uh, demographic in the United States. So there's a lot of work to do there. But this pastor who was open to transforming the perception within his own congregation about Islam and Muslims, said the way to do it, he called it the, the hands, heart, head method. I said, explain. He said, let's just roll up our sleeves and do some good work together, feeding the homeless or, you know, giving gifts to, you know, to during, during holiday times to those who are less fortunate or cleaning up the environment, whatever the issue is, our, our faith values uh, uh, implore us to, to make a difference in that regard. Let's just do that together. In the course of that, work that we're doing together, our hearts will, no, will naturally bond together. And then once we have that human connection, we can then start having a cerebral conversation about where we're similar and where we're different. But it already, you know, it, the, the bond is already there. The, the strength of the relationship is strong enough that it can carry the weight of the heavy conversations that might follow about where, you know, politics and and, uh, you know, specific theological points of, of similarity and difference. And I think that that was a very wise observation and, and strategy. And I, that's why I always encourage people, go get to know your neighbor. In fact, Pew, uh, was it, uh, Pew did a study, and I think also the Islamic, or the uh, Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, ISPU, they both did studies where they look at people's attitudes towards one another uh, you know, or attitude towards Muslims in the United States. And they did find that the biggest factor in overcoming negative, negative imagination about Islam and Muslims was to get to know your Muslim neighbor. So. Yeah, I thought, I, yeah, I thought that was great. You told me about the work you were doing. How are you keeping community alive during COVID? So we're, we're rising to the challenge as our uh, other faith communities. Uh, I think the, 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 the biggest challenge are for the Orthodox Jews because they, they issue some of the, uh, the technology. But uh, I was just talking to uh, one of my close rabbi friends who, who's modern Orthodox. And I said, how are you doing it? And he said, well, we're just meeting in people's backyards. So, and we're you know, trying to socially distance, but they're still meeting. And they live in the neighborhood. So they're actually making it work anyway. We uh, are very spread out, but we're, we're using technology. We're using you know, Zoom and during the month of Ramadan, which is the equivalent of, uh, you know, our high, our, you know, of, of the Jewish high holy days for Muslims, you know, we would fast during the day. And usually there's an intense break fast and socialization that happens every evening and then followed by an hour of prayer, follow, you know, listening to the Quran being recited. One thirtieth each night over the course of 30 nights, we listen to the entirety of the Quran while standing in prayer. We can't do that. Uh, collectively, but what we have been doing is having the reciters recite via you know via Zoom, 
So you're and used- then, yeah, we use Zoom and then have commentators come on and then, you know, and, and usually our day of gathering is Friday for Jews. It's uh, Saturday and uh, Friday night into Saturday. And for Christians, it's Sunday. Most Christians, not Seventh-day Adventists, but the rest. And so Friday midday, we'll have via Zoom a, a sermon. Some people will acknowledge that as legitimate as a substitute and others will say, well, we're just not obligated to formally count that as part of a a ritual, but we'll listen to it and get inspiration and then pray the noon prayer thereafter individually. So, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of make it, make it happen as we can. The hardest part is for young people who just really need that in-person socialization, but yeah, we, we've done some online youth groups and other things that we're still figuring it out as we're going. Yeah. Like everybody else. And uh, your kids, are they doing, they're doing the online school? Yeah, my wife, fortunately, is a teacher at our uh, two daughters' school. They're 10 and 12. Uh, our, uh, we have a 17-year-old son. He's a senior in high school. He's missing soccer, although they might do an in-person soccer season in the spring. We'll see. And my oldest son, following in his dad's footsteps, is at UC Berkeley. Uh, he's a sophomore. And he came home uh, when COVID started and, and did everything online. He just moved back up to Berkeley and is part of a pod of like 40 of his uh, classmates or, or peers at a uh, student-led co-op on the north side of campus. So he's kind of getting a little bit of the college experience even while zooming into his classes from his dorm room. Okay, that's good. Yeah, I've got I've got a daughter at school, but in an apartment online with there you go Zoom burnout. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's tough. I don't envy the the kids to have to do that, but you know, not. I don't envy your wife having the kids and teaching. Uh, that's tough. And also keeping everything alive with community is, is just so tough. What is the question that you are asked the most about being a Muslim? So I would say there are three major misconceptions about Islam that I've been asked the most over the years uh, from outside the community. Then there's questions inside the community as well. But outside the community, yeah. I would say that, go ahead. No, I know. I said, all I said was that was interesting. I, now I want to know inside and outside. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm happy to share. But the outside the community, I would say that the, the biggest misconception is most people don't realize that Muslims worship God and that Islam is as Western as Judaism and Christianity in that it traces its roots back to Abraham, the patriarch of, of monotheism. And, you know, Abraham, who is you know not as major of a figure in Christianity and Judaism as Moses and Jesus, uh, Jesus for Christianity, obviously, or Moses for, for Judaism, but was the forefather of, of both of them. And he had two children, Ishmael and Isaac. And Ishmael's descendants became the Arabs, and from them, Muhammad uh, was born about six centuries after Jesus. So Muslims look to the monotheism of Abraham and the cousins of of the Israelites, right? Because Isaac had a 12 children, or I'm sorry, Isaac had uh, Esau and Jacob. Jacob had 12 children. Jacob's nickname was Israel. And so the the Israelite, the 12 tribes of Israel, or the 12 children of Jacob, they're all cousins to the Arabs. And so most people don't understand that connection and realize that theologically speaking, Islam is right in between Judaism and Christianity. As close as Judaism and Christianity are to each other, Islam is closer to to Judaism than Christianity is in that there's a focus on monotheism, God the creator, you know, it's, there's not a trinity of, 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 you know, that God is part of a trinity. So theologically speaking, Islam and Judaism are, are extremely close. Really, I would say the main difference is I mean, very similar rituals, very similar dietary restrictions. Uh, Islam is like kosher, but kosher light, if you will, with one exception, no alcohol, which is, I guess, more stringent. But other than that, it's whatever uh, is kosher is, is halal. There, there is some difference about the hereafter. There's more emphasis on heaven and hell in Islam than there is in Judaism. And it's, you know, there's a debate, there's a spectrum amongst uh, different branches of Judaism as to what happens to your soul after you die. Islam, however, is closer to Christianity than Judaism in that we also recognize Jesus as a divinely inspired prophetic figure. Now, in Christianity, he's considered the Son of God and part of the Trinity. Muslims, you know, don't go that far. We we recognize that he was 
divinely inspired and a, and a prophet. And in fact, we say that Jesus was the Messiah, not Muhammad and not Moses, but, you know, or not Elijah, but Jesus. And so we recognize, you know, the special role of Jesus, the Messiah. He was the Messiah, that he performed all these miraculous things and et cetera, et cetera, born to the Virgin Mary. So we've, and, and the focus on heaven and hell is very much uh, similar between Islam and Christianity. So most people don't conceptualize Islam as being right in the middle of that monotheistic sandwich of Judaism and Christianity. We're kind of the meat in the middle, if you will. And so that's number one misconception. The second one is that Muslims uh, are oftentimes perceived or Islam is perceived as being misogynistic or anti-women. And I'll say that some Muslim societies and cultures are, you know, they mistreat women, but Islam as a religion does not condone that. And it is uh, against the values of the Quran, the teachings of the Quran. I would go so far as to say that the message of Muhammad was a, a feminist message, feminism, meaning, you know, giving uh, equal status to women and rights, transforming Arabia, Arabian culture from what it was before Islam. Islam gave women the right to marry and divorce, like to choose who they marry. They cannot be forced into marriage. And they gave the women gave women the right to, to divorce, the right to inherit before they were excluded from that. And there was this tradition in pre-Islamic Arabia where women were considered, it was considered a shame to have a daughter as a firstborn. They wanted to have a, a son as a firstborn. If you had a daughter as a firstborn, it was so shameful that the pre-Islamic Arabs used to go out to the desert and bury their daughters alive, hoping that their next child would be a male. And the Quran came and Muhammad came and slammed that practice as, you know, as egregious and, and highly immoral. And, and Muhammad even taught, he said, it's not only honorable to have a daughter as your firstborn, but if you have uh, three daughters and raise them uh, well, you can, you're guaranteed paradise. So it's an honor to have a daughter. And, you know, so many other things that really uh, elevated and, and uh, transformed the status of women in society. Unfortunately, Islam spread to places that were tribal and had practices that were cultural that, you know, whether it's, you know, in Central Asia, Afghanistan, other places where, you know, they, they had a certain treatment of women before Islam got there and Islam did not rid them of some of those patriarchal or misogynistic practices and so there's still a lot of work to do, but Islam is not to blame. Muslims, uh, people who call themselves Muslims sometimes do not live up to the standards of, of, the, of the teachings of the faith. That's very surprising. I mean, I, I had no idea that, that that word needs to get out, definitely. Yeah. And the last thing is, you know, the, the impression is that Islam is violent. And yes, there you see a lot of uh, news coverage about very horrific uh, acts of terrorism and, and other, a lot of points of conflict around the world involve Muslims, whether it be in Yemen or Syria or, you know, the Israel-Palestine conflict or, you know, you, you see in Iraq and uh, places like Kashmir or uh, the Uyghurs in China, you know, are now uh, facing, a con you know, concentration camps and as the UN called it a genocide uh, in Myanmar and Rohingya, the Rohingyas in, uh, in Burma or Myanmar. So, you know, there's, there's all these points, in, and Bernard Lewis, who's an Orientalist scholar out of uh, Princeton, called it, you know, Islam's bloody borders. And there, there are many conflicts around the world that involve the Muslim community, but it has nothing to do with Islam as a religion. It has more to do with colonialism and the legacy of colonialism. And, you know, looking at it through that lens is, you know, you don't have to look at Islam as in, in an exceptionalist light. You can look at it as, you know, all of the places of conflict around the world, whether it's, you know, Northern Ireland, right? What's going on there? You have the Protestants, you have the Catholics. Uh, it's not about, there's nothing inherent within Catholicism that would empower the, the IRA to employ terrorism as a means of, you know, political advancement for the, the, the Catholic community. But they did, they employed terrorism and, and other techniques and it has nothing to do with Catholicism. It has everything to do with geopolitics and sort of a nationalism or clash of nationalisms in which religion is kind of a, a, a tribal identity marker, a nationalist identity or an ultra-nationalist identity marker. So one way to look at all of these conflicts is to look at it through the lens of a clash of nationalisms in which religion is one of those markers. And one of the ways that, you know, you can, you can understand that best 
is to look at, let's say, for example, in Iraq, it's not in the headlines as much these days, but it used to be, you know, the three major groups in Iraq that are fighting against each other are the, the Sunnis, the Shiites, and the Kurds. And that's the way the news covers it. Sunnis, Shiites, and Kurds. So, you know, I, I like to ask uh, whenever I speak publicly, uh, the audience, what religion are the Shiites? Oh, they're Shiite Muslim. What religion are the Sunnis? Well, they're Sunni Muslim. What religion are the Kurds? And then people kind of pause and they're like, uh, Yazidis, Christian, you know, they have no clue. I said, well, they're Sunni Muslim. But who's fighting against the, you know, the Sunni Arab Muslims and, and ISIS and all of that? It was the Kurds, if you remember, uh, the Peshmerga and all of that. So they were Sunnis fighting against Sunnis. So the media couldn't, you know, they didn't, they were lazy. They, they didn't want to have to explain what's really going on and what's the source of the conflict. It's nationalism, Kurdish nationalism versus Arab, Sunni nationalism versus Arab Shiite nationalism. Uh, and so they just kind of broke it down, hoping no one would notice that they're using two religious categories, Sunni and Shiite, and then an ethnic category, Kurdish, to describe the three groups. But it's not it's not looking at it with a unified lens. And it's really not looking at what the, they're not fighting over theology. It's not like the Sunnis and Shiites all of a sudden after 1400 years said, oh, we disagree about theology, let's kill each other. They've been, they've been intermarrying, living together for all of this time. All of a sudden there's a conflict. It's because 60% of the population is Shiite Arab. And it's now all of a sudden a democracy that Saddam Hussein is gone. And so they're vying for power. And now the 20% Arab Sunni population it, that was empowered by Saddam Hussein is now feeling marginalized. And so they're using violence as a way to try and undermine the political authority of the majority Shiite Arab population. And the Kurds who geographically have their own area and some oil want to carve out their own sort of uh, in, independent or semi-independent state. My point is simply this, without getting into the weeds, geopolitics has more to do with nationalism in which religion is just invoked as part of one's identity. And it's really not about the faith. And it's hard to wrap your mind around that when people are in the name of religion doing what they're doing, even though they're not doing it in the spirit of the religion. Right. So that's the third sort of major misunderstanding. Uh, that's not, as you heard me going on at length, trying to explain it, it's not a soundbite. It's not just a, you know, an easy thing to, to contextualize. And so there's a lot of work to do. We have to be as consumers of news, more, more thoughtful about how it is that we understand the world and not just take the lazy uh, journalists uh, approach to explaining things in a, in a soundbite. Always, especially now with the news. So yes. what are the misconceptions within the religion? So I wouldn't say they're misconceptions, but the biggest questions that I'm asked um, have to do with, number one, how do we pass on faith to the next generation? Most people uh, who are of immigrant backgrounds, they just kind of absorbed their uh, Islamic identity and, and practice from the ethos of the culture in which they grew up. But here, as we are talking about it, you know, this society is not a religious, you know, culture. It doesn't have a religious culture in general. And so you know, how to help a young person uh, find meaning and purpose in faith and how to effectively pass on faith to the next generation is the biggest uh, challenge that we, faith, that we face. So there's the, the three biggest things are passing on faith to the next generation. The second one is, you know, how do we understand our tradition ourselves who might have a commitment to the faith, but how do we understand it in a way that is both authentic to the teachings of the of the prophet and the revelation of the Quran, but for the modern context in which we live uh, here in the United States as part of a pluralism as, you know, how do we manifest those values in, in a way that uh, navigates all of the challenges that we face in the world today. And, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to uh, prepare our, our graduates to do is to is to be sophisticated and nuanced in presenting Islam to the community itself in a way that is inspiring and uplifting and, and is, isn't just ritual, but is ritual with, you know, people always say, I want to be spiritual and not religious. What they really are saying is, I, I want to feel good, but I don't want to put in the work to do it. And I say, you know, I said, look, religion <laughs> when done right is spirituality plus discipline plus community. 
And so, if, you know, how do we create that community in a way that isn't through guilt tripping or through negativity or hellfire and brimstone, but through inspiration? And that's, you know, that's the second sort of challenge within the community. How do we have better leadership and understanding in, uh, of our own faith? And then thirdly is, how do we, how do we represent our, our faith to the society in which we live, you know, to give pushback against all these misunderstandings? And that's, that's what I was just uh, talking with you about, those three major misunderstandings about, uh, about Islam. So, and, then, and then one last question I get is just a technical legal question is medical ethics. You know, my, my father, my child is on ventilation. Can I pull the plug or what do I do? You know, living will, all of those kinds of things are, are also uh, very uh, challenging questions that I often, oftentimes get. So how do you make it relevant to today's generation the new, and make it a living, breathing? So it isn't what you experienced growing up. That is an excellent question, and really at the heart of what we're trying to do at, at Bayan Islamic Graduate School is, you know, we, we one of our faculty members is Dr. Rami Nashashibi. He's a, uh, a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award. He, you know, the Opus Prize for his organization, uh, Inner City Muslim Action Network. He's rooted in the south side of, of Chicago, one of the toughest neighborhoods uh, in in the in the United States, highest you know, gun death rate in the country, et cetera. A lot of uh, gang warfare, drug, you know, uh, drug infested neighborhoods, et cetera. So what he he teaches, of course, and he's leading an organization, as I indicated, Inner City Muslim Action Network, Iman, faith, as you started out the program by saying, it's a beautiful word. He is helping people who've embraced Islam into prison to reintegrate back in society, giving them a skill set for them to be able to be contractors and do construction and to rebuild neighborhoods figuratively and literally, uh, taking over drug dens and, and remodeling the houses and then having some of these ex-con, uh, you know, formerly incarcerated move in, you know, they're tough guys, former gang members, et cetera, who are now on the straight and narrow. And when they move in, people don't mess with them and the, the drug dealers kind of, you know, give them a wide berth and they establish, they regenerate the neighborhood. They uplift it and, and create a safer environment. And so, you know, one block at a time, they're, they're trying to transform that. And, and I mentioned him because he's teaching a course for our graduates or for our students entitled Community Organizing as Spiritual Practice. And, you know, he studies some, uh, you know, Jewish the the theorists on community organizing, Sal Lewinsky and you know, they're, they're looking at how to make religion the source of your inspiration to change the world. And when you give young people a sense of purpose, they can feel like they're making a difference, like they're addressing societal injustices that they're inheriting from, you know, previous generations. That gives young people a connection to the faith that's much more meaningful than just performing ritual. Performing ritual is important. Uh, it provides you that inner peace and that connection to the divine that in, that then you can draw upon when going and doing the hard work, expending that uh, emotional capital uh, in connecting with, with other people and, and giving of yourself. You have more to give. And so th that's how we're trying to do it, through giving young people opportunities to serve uh, humanity and make this world a better place. In Judaism, you say, uh, tikkun olam. So we have that as well. It's called Islah. And uh, in fact, one of our graduates started a community called Islah in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, it's called Islah LA. And, you know, they have food pantries. They have the reentry program for formerly incarcerated. They have, you know, job placement program. They have a, a elementary school and uh, really creating a very robust uh, community, uh, tight-knit community and in a tough neighborhood. It's so great. What would you tell somebody who is having a tough time? Who's just, I mean, especially right now, there's plenty of people, they're having a hard time. They don't, their motivation's down. Sometimes they don't want to get out of bed in the morning. So I, there's two different answers to this. And what, we know one of our faculty members is a psychiatrist from Yale. And it's important to know that mental illness is something that should be taken seriously. And, you know, if the if it's not just a lack of motivation, if it's something that is clinical and requires a mental health professional, there's no taboo in seeking mental health, um, you know, seeking help from a mental health professional. Uh, we exercise our bodies to be in physical shape 
and we take care of ourselves and take medication to be physically fine, we need to, to take mental health seriously as well and, and, and go through whether it's you know, a uh, kind of a therapy, cognitive therapy, or or even medication when necessary in order to keep our mental health in order. That being said, if it's a spiritual challenge that someone is facing, you know, for me, there there are there's kind of a mindset uh, that motivates me and that inspires me uh, to face challenges and to get up uh, on mornings that I'd rather just uh, sleep in, close my eyes, and pretend that the world doesn't exist. There's a, a, a teaching of, of Muhammad that says that the truly faithful person has an incredible predicament because no matter what they face, good or bad, it's all good. If they face some calamity, they're, they're patient, meaning they recognize that this comes from the divine and that uh, you know God is good and all-powerful. And if we're facing something, we were meant to face it. And the question is not why, because God is not malicious, but rather how. How do we respond to this in a way that's beautiful and good? And if we if we ask that question and try and figure out and give it our best effort, it's good for our soul. And if we face some kind of uh, good fortune and we respond also not with arrogance or pride or sense of entitlement, but with gratitude, then that's also good for our soul. And, it, and if you think about it, you know, that that stating, that statement, no matter what you the, the truly faithful person no matter what befalls him or her, it's all good because of their response. If 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 he or she is great, if she he or she is patient in adversity or grateful in good fortune, then it's all good. And what else do we face besides hardship or you know good fortune? And the question is just how. And we you know we always need to be reflective on what is the best way. We might have an assumption, but you know we we give it our best human effort. And as long as we're trying. It's ultimately in the journey, even if we make the wrong, you know, if we if we take the wrong, uh, you know, uh, course of action in response to whatever, as long as we're trying our best, that's the other part of the uh, of the teaching, then we're, we're in good standing with God, knowing that, you know, he as, as one good friend put it recently, he said, God is good and he knows that I'm trying. You know, what else could you ask for? So there's that, you know, I always say, I just gave a sermon last Friday and I said, the, and the, the takeaway is three things, the right state of mind, which I just shared with you, which is to be patient and adversity and grateful and, and good fortune, the right state of heart. And that is to respond to hate with love. You know, one of the things you oftentimes hear people say to justify bad behavior is to say, oh, well, you got to fight fire with fire. Uh, you know, people are being whatever. We got to we got to respond in a similar fashion. And I said, well, but, you know, my brother's a firefighter. If if you were to ask him, what's the best way to fight a fire? Is it with fire? He would say, you're you're nuts. You, you know, your best way to fight fire is with water. You only, you know, in a wildfire situation, if you're desperate and you don't have enough, you know, tankers to drop what, then you might have to set a backfire. But it, you know, it could also get out of hand. It's a dangerous proposition the best way to fight fire is with water. And I would say similarly, as people of faith, we're not desperate. We have a deep well of, of love and, and, and faith that we can draw upon to respond to evil and hatred with what is better, uh, love and beauty, uh, until, as the verse of the Quran says, evil and good are not the same. Repel evil with what is better until the one who is like your worst enemy becomes like your best friend. So that's the, the, the right state of heart. And then the right course of action is just pursue excellence. I always tell people sometimes they feel discriminated against or they feel uh, that there's injustice in the world. I say, well, all you can control, you know, kind of like the Alcoholics Anonymous uh, prayer, right? I don't have it memorized verbatim. I'm not, uh, you know, fortunately, I'm not uh, a member, but it's, you know, to discern between what you have control over and what you don't have control over and to be patient with what you don't have control over and to do your best to have the courage to do what you can with what you do have control over. So I always tell people, pursue excellence. You know, when Muhammad Ali was a boxer and, you know, the heavyweight champion of the world, now we look back at him and say, wow, he, what a, a beloved figure and how awesome he was and how, you know, everyone loves him. But back in the day, he was a controversial figure. He was opposed to the Vietnam War. He lost his title. He was uh, banned from boxing. You know, he was kind of a hated figure uh, in some circles, but he persisted in pursuing excellence. And even his critics 
if he walks into a room, every one of them would want his autograph. I mean, he would command respect even as he stood his ground uh, from a moral point of view and spoke truth to power and, and uh, lived accordingly. If you pursue excellence, you will uh, earn and, and command the respect of, of those around you. So, you know, the right state of mind is patience and knowing, knowing that everything comes from God. Right state of heart is, you know, don't fight fire with fire, respond with, with beauty and love, and you'll transform the world. And number three is pursue excellence and you will have the, the greatest uh, opportunity to change the circumstances thereby. That's great. Do you have any message of hope that you would want to transmit? I, I would say that hope is the definition of faith. And the opposite of, of faith is not disbelief, it's despair. And that a, a truly faithful person is someone who, who believes that, you know, God is greater. Uh, than what and is is large and in charge of all of our affairs and so if god is good and beautiful and, and loving and uh in charge of all things even though evil exists it, it exists because in order for us as beings that have free will to choose between good and something else there has to be something else and and you know so therefore we are capable of doing bad things as as beings with free will but it means choosing good is even that much sweeter and that much more rewarding uh, and helping us live to our potential. And so the, the, the hope lies in not being overwhelmed by the negativity that must exist in order for beauty and goodness to, to mean something. It's in recognizing that you have a choice to contribute to beauty and goodness in the world, uh, re- live up to the potential that you have, as we would say as Muslims, that your, your God created potential to uh, help repair the world, to, to be amongst those who establish justice. You know, as Cornel West put it, who's a professor at Princeton or Harvard, he, he, I think he taught it both. Uh, he, he put it this way. He said, justice is what love looks like in public. So the way that we express our love for one another is to establish a just society. And you can, you can contribute to that by choosing to live up to your, your, your human potential that we believe God, God instilled in each of us. And, and as uh, the one verse in the Quran says, that God breathed into each one of us from his own spirit. So we have that sort of divine inspiration, if you will, to, uh, to animate us and, to, uh, and that, that potential that he gave each of us to live up to. Oh, that's great. And you had told me when we met last time that religion's main purpose is to give inner peace. So that's it. I mean, you know, that's I think that's ultimately the journey that we're that we're all on is, you know, this world is is challenging and turbulent. And if we can, if we can have that inner rock, that inner sense of security, you know, I, I put it this way. And just reflecting on my own spiritual journey as a young person, you know, pursuing excellence in school or even sports or whatever, at some point was, a, you know, to some extent was me trying to, to achieve something that would give me a sense of worth, self-worth and, and security. Because if I can achieve that thing that everyone values, then that must mean that I have worth and I have value. But ultimately speaking, and I think it was the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Reality that, that says, the ultimate punishment is to be exposed to how vast existence is and how insignificant you are, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we are on a small particle of dust in the vast universe. And, you know, we're, we're just a blip in, in history. We're, we are ultimately insignificant. However, our ultimate significance is that, as I see it, that God created us. And if we are in the, in the consciousness of the one who's in charge of all of existence and throughout all of time and history, then our significance comes in being in God's good graces. And the good news is God's good graces means that we treat one another with beauty and justice and peace and love and compassion, et cetera. So it's kind of our, it's kind of our, our roadmap to being, to finding that inner peace and security uh, and bedrock with our connection to God and manifesting that in uh, a beautiful connection to one another and the planet, by the way, this environment that is sustaining us. So that's those are, those are my final words. Ah, that is great. Well, thank you so much for coming on 52 Weeks of Hope. I really enjoyed chatting with you again. I look forward to seeing where you continue taking your center and where you end up. 
Thank you so much, Lauren, and uh, wonderful program. Keep, keep uh, inspiring people with hope. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and can take into your week ahead the reminders from Iman Jihad Turk, the true sense that we are all connected, and to choose compassion and connection, going toward the beauty manifesting what we are all called to do. Be sure to tune in next week when visionary national spiritual leader Rabbi Jill Zimmerman shows us how we can always change whatever path we are on. Rabbi Jill, a teacher, mom, gardener, and perpetual seeker, became a rabbi at the age of 47. She's built a remarkable online community that manifests her vision, as you can too. Join us next week for Rabbi Jill Zimmerman, who shows us how you can always change your path and leave after hearing Rabbi Jill with that wonderful feeling of being full of possibilities. So thanks for listening. And remember, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a positive review and send us feedback on our website, 52weeksofhope.com. I'm Lauren Abrams. Thanks for listening.